You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, and this is the Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is Tuesday, April 27th, a really special day in history because you realize on this date in 2017, the Fire Festival began. Yes, all of us were shocked by a man who considered giving oral sex in exchange for bottled water. Until last year, when we all considered giving oral sex in exchange for Clorox wipes, toilet paper, and also bottled water. What a life it's been. Anyway, coming up on tonight's show, the CDC's exciting and confusing new mask guidelines. Dulce Sloan gives female MCs their due and will count every person in the United States. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Let's kick things off with the census. It's how the US government says, everyone in the country makes some noise. Every 10 years, the census determines how many people are in the country and then how many congressional seats each state gets. And of course, which city gets a real housewives. And now the 2020 numbers are officially out. The U.S. Census reports over the last decade, the population grew at the slowest rate since the 1930s. This was driven by a leveling off of immigration and a declining birth rate in the country. Because of population shifts, Texas will pick up two seats in Congress. Florida, North Carolina, Montana, Colorado, and Oregon will each get one more. And for the first time, California is losing one seat, as are Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and New York, which, get this, was just 89 people short of keeping all of its seats. Uh, this is unbelievable. You're telling me if just 89 more New Yorkers had filled out their census, the state wouldn't have lost a house seat? 89. I mean, that's basically nothing. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of that kid at the carnival who realizes that if only they'd worn two pairs of socks, he would have been tall enough to get on the ride but he didn't. So then he gets mad. He cuts the power to the Ferris wheel, but that backfires because his crush is up there and she gets scared and that just drives her into Timothy's arms. Whatever, I'm taller than him now. So look, this is really unfortunate for New York State because it means that one of its congressional districts disappears. And that means whoever represented that district in Congress becomes a Ronin forced to travel the countryside looking for a new district to represent. Now, aside from New York getting screwed, the big news out of the census is that America's population grew at the slowest rate since the 1930s. Basically, immigration is down and the birth rate is falling, primarily due to this photo. And I don't know exactly what that says, but I do know that the 1930s sucked for America. I mean, there was the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, everything was black and white. And if you wanted somewhere to sit, you needed to climb a half-built skyscraper. Yo, that was a shitty time to be alive. Moving on to some news about the news. If you watch CNN, well, first of all, congratulations on being basic. And second, you may have seen a political pundit named Rick Santorum, former Republican senator, and what you get if you sucked the handsome out of Mitt Romney. He's known for his reliably conservative opinions on the big issues of the day. But now, one of his lesser-known opinions about American history 
has slipped out. Rick Santorum, since losing his Pennsylvania Senate seat to Bob Casey years ago, Santorum has found one-off cable stardom. He wasn't particularly well-known for his views on Native Americans until today. When this surfaced, a portion of his remarks to the Young Americas Foundation. We came here and created a blank slate. We, we birthed a nation. From nothing. I mean, there's nothing here. I mean, yes, we have Native Americans, but if, but candidly, that that there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. It it was born of the people who came here pursuing religious liberty to practice their faith. Yeah, guys, I I hate to admit it, but Rick Santorum is right. From Tallahassee to the Mojave Desert, from Chappaqua to Chattanooga, there's no trace of Native American culture anywhere in America. I mean, if anything, Native Americans should be grateful because before Santorum's forefathers got here, what did they have? They had nothing. They didn't have smallpox. They didn't have obesity. They didn't have unemployment. They didn't have drug addiction. Basically, life sucked. This argument is so offensive that even the Cleveland Indians logo stopped smiling. How can you say this? Oh no, there was nothing before we got... You know who Santorum is like? He's like that guy that shows up to a party late going, oh yeah, let's get this party started. No, my man, the party was going on for a few thousand years, long before you got here with your whack-ass moves. Oh, and just by the way, uh, there probably would be more Native American culture if the colonizers hadn't taken their sacred ground to build a few pizza huts. But let's move on now to our main story. As you know, coronavirus has been with us for over a year now. And it's changed everything about our lives, right? We've lost jobs. We've spent all day on Zoom. We've forgotten how to interact with other people. I mean, I don't even remember how to shake hands anymore. Like, do I grab the other person's hand or do I just shake mine in front of their face? This is it, right? This, this is no, no? So for a long time, we've been sitting in our homes and washing our face masks, waiting for the day when things would start to get back to normal. But my friends, it looks like that day may finally be here. Tonight, the CDC's About Face changes daily life for all Americans, especially those fully vaccinated, releasing this new chart updating guidelines on face masks outdoors. The agency now says whether you're vaccinated or not, it's safe to walk down the street, go for a run or a bike ride without a face covering. You also won't need one to attend a small outdoor gathering like a barbecue if everyone else is vaccinated. For those who are fully vaccinated, the new outdoor guidelines extend further. The CDC also saying it's safe to gather outside in a small group, whether others are vaccinated or not. The bottom line is clear. If you're vaccinated, you can do more things. So for those who haven't gotten their vaccination yet, this is another great reason to go get vaccinated now, now. Yes. Yes, yes, thank you, yes, this is so great. The CDC is saying that you can walk and run outside without a mask now, even if you're not vaccinated. Oh, hallelujah! Guys, I'm so happy. I'm so happy, you know why? Because now we won't have to give each other dirty looks when we're walking past each other on the street just because of wearing or not wearing masks. You know, now we can go back to the good old days. 
of giving each other dirty looks because of racism, classism, sexism, ableism, homophobia, and those people who wear Adidas pants with Nike shoes. What are you doing? You crazy motherfucker! You see, we never needed masks. We already knew how to hate each other. I'm also glad because now, according to the CDC charts, if you're vaccinated, you can go eat outdoors now without a mask on, as opposed to before when you had to wear a mask while you were eating. That was such a disaster, but man, I lost a ton of weight. Whoo, whoo, I'm looking so good and hungry. For real, people, I'm just so happy that we can start taking off our masks now because everybody wants to take off their masks. Like, nobody likes wearing those things. You know, even Scorpion, even Scorpion in the new Mortal Kombat movie, even Scorpion just desperately wants to take off his mask. I don't know why he got that metal face mask. Those things are so hard on your washing machine. So look, man, I'm excited that life is slowly getting back to normal. But what doesn't excite me is the messaging from the CDC. In fact, it's made me so mad that the only way I can express myself is in a viral rant. Okay, now look, people. I know science is difficult, and this is a novel virus and all of that, but who's running messaging at the CDC, huh? First they said, masks make us less safe. Oh, don't wear a mask. Then they said, masks make us more safe. And now, according to this new chart, masks can make you not safe again? In fact, this whole chart is trash. Yeah, I said it. I mean, for starters, this guy is in the least safe category, but he's wearing a mask. If it's not safe, even with a mask on, then don't have a guy there. Just have an ax or something that signifies danger, like a skull and crossbones or a picture of R. Kelly. And the whole thing is too complicated. I have to sit here trying to interpret reds and yellows and greens. There's outdoor, indoor, outdoor, indoor, partial, indoor, outdoor with the people who might be vaccinated, partially vaccinated. This is unreadable. You don't see the forest service putting out flow charts like no fires, unless the fires are in stone pits. Or you come from a long line of firefighters. Or you watch the weather and you know a rainstorm is coming in a few minutes. No, they say no fires or this bear is gonna eat your family. Who designed this chart? The same people who designed those parking signs in LA? And the really frustrating thing about this chart is that they've spent months, they spent five months telling us to get vaccinated. Oh, get vaccinated, and this will all be over. Get vaccinated! And I was like, great, I'll get all the four vaccines if it means I'll get my life back. But now, now they're putting out a chart and it says even if you get vaccinated, you can only do two more things without a mask on? Two? Guys, what the hell? The shit you're saying to people is incoherent. You're telling us these new vaccines are 95% effective and will stop coronavirus, but we still can't do anything without a mask on anyway. Which is it? Is this one of the most effective vaccines in the history of the world or does it not work? It's not clear messaging, especially if you're desperately trying to convince people to get the vaccine. Can you imagine if every time you ordered an Uber, it said, oh, your Uber's coming in five minutes, uh, but maybe also get a lift, you know, just in case. I mean, I already know that maybe the Uber could get into an accident on the way over, but if the app keeps telling me that, I'm gonna stop ordering Ubers. And yes, I know the CDC is just trying to cover all the bases because maybe there's a tiny chance you could get corona even if you're vaccinated. But if that messaging ends up convincing people that there's not much of a reason to get vaccinated at all, then we're shooting ourselves in the foot, which is not something we should do. Or as the CDC would put it, masked guy in an indoor red zone. 
All right, when we come back, Dulce Sloan takes a look at the women who made rap history. You don't wanna miss it. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. When Dulce Sloan has something to say, we let her say it in another episode of Dulcein'. Hip-hop. It's how we know what bottles to pop and what luxury items we can't afford. And we've been living in a golden era of female rappers with legends like Missy Elliott, Lil' Kim, and Lauryn Hill. Not to mention Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B dancing with a certain African who misplaced my ticket to the Grammys. But did you know that female rappers have been huge in every era? Every era? Every, every era? That didn't work. It's true. Rap's history is full of women who have largely been forgotten, like Sylvia Robinson, the woman who helped create hip hop. Sylvia was a singer, record producer, label executive, and the first person to rock the Pharrell hat. She took rap from little-known basement parties in the Bronx to worldwide commercial success in 1979 by conceiving and producing rap's first hit record, Rapper's Delight. Not only was it the first rap single to conquer the charts, it also sold over a million copies. That's right, it went platinum. And back then, we didn't even know what that was. They had to whip out a periodic table. And women were all over hip hop's early era. Like MC Sharrock, AKA Sharon Green. She got her start in the South Bronx rapping at parties, which was tough. Not just because no one had heard a woman rapping before, but also because the dude at the party with an acoustic guitar is gonna be pissed. We hate that guy. In 1979, MC Sharrock's group, The Funky Four Plus One, became the first rap group to sign with the record label, making her the first female rapper to record a song. Not only that, their performance on Saturday Night Live was also the first ever national TV appearance by any rappers. And rapping in a group is great for a female MC because when the man repeats what you just said but slightly louder, he's not being sexist, he's being a good hype man. Being a good hype man. See, women weren't just part of rap's birth, they also invented the rap beat. The rap beat. Okay, that's enough. The first ever official rap beef was known as the Roxanne Wars, which centered around Lolita Shantae Gooden. She got her start battling traveling MCs at just 14 years old, like a cross between 8 Mile and Dora the Explorer. The beef started in 1984 when the group UTFO released a song called Roxanne Roxanne about a woman who had spurned their romantic advances. While Shantae was walking to the laundromat, her neighbor and record producer, Marley Marl, asked her to rhyme over a beat. So she recorded a track in his living room called Roxanne's Revenge, where she roasted every member of UTFO. The track was a monster hit, selling 250,000 copies in New York City alone. UTFO was so stung from getting dissed by a teenage girl, they decided to fire back at Shantae with an answer track called The Real Roxanne, which I understand. You're supposed to be tough, but a kid dismantled you? And she did it in between errands. Her to-do list was groceries, laundry, destroy a group of grown men, and walk the dog. From there, the so-called Roxanne Wars truly ignited because other artists joined in. When it was all done, some 87 Roxanne tracks had been released. It was like a rap Gettysburg, but instead of the battlefield being covered in blood, it was covered in grown men's feelings. Mm. 
And we couldn't talk about women in hip hop without talking about how they influenced the social consciousness in rap. Take MC Light, one of the earliest known conscious rappers. Her first song at the age of 16 was about the prevalence of drugs in her neighborhood and how that ruined her love life. And I could relate. At 16, my love life was ruined by Brandon, lying about what type of bike he was picking me up on. I thought he had a Harley. Turns out he had a Huffy. And that brings us to our final female pillar and hip hop pioneer, Queen Latifah. I don't know if it's appropriate, I just like to do it. To some, she's Khadija from Living Single. To others, she's Mama Morton in Chicago. But she's without a doubt one of the most unforgettable hip hop artists in rap history. But remember, hip hop is a lot like your uncle. Fun, a little dangerous, and incredibly misogynistic. But Queen Latifah burst onto the rap scene with the pro-woman message. Her song, Ladies First, showed off not only her lyrical prowess, but also uplifted women and name-checked other female MCs. She was shouting out more women than Mambo Number no. 5. Then in 1993, her song called UNITY called out men in hip-hop for referring to women as bitches and hoes. Bitches and hoes. That's my bad. I got caught up. I can see why I shouldn't have said that. I'ma just leave. Mm -hmm. Queen Latifah had 99 problems and the word bitch was all 99. That women empowerment anthem became a hit and made Queen Latifah the first woman to win best rap solo performance at the Grammys. How do you like that, bitches? So the next time you think about hip hop icons, make sure you remember the young shorties, the bad honeys, and the all-stars. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to record my own response to Roxanne. It's called, Roxanne, give me back my man. He wasn't cheating. She just kidnapped him. Snatched him right off his huffy. Thank you so much for that, Dulce. All right, when we come back, we'll be talking to the founder of the Me Too movement about a brand new book she's got, Tarana Burke. So stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. My guests tonight are Tarana Burke and Dr. Brene Brown. They're here to talk about their new collection of essays entitled, You Are Your Best Thing. It's about the black experience, vulnerability, and shame resilience. Tarana Burke, Dr. Brene Brown, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you, thank you for having me. Um, it is very seldom that I have two guests simultaneously on the show. It is also very rare that I have two guests who I hold in such high regard at the same time on the show. Tarana Burke, many people are familiar with you as the founder of the Me Too movement and Time Person of the Year. Dr. Brene Brown, many people are familiar with your work through your podcast or one of your five New York Times bestsellers where you talk about everything trauma-related, childhood-related, life-related. So thank you both of you for joining me on the show because you've come here with a really interesting project where you've, you've worked together to compile an anthology, a collection of essays that gives us insight into trauma and how it affects people throughout their lives, specifically black people living in the present day. And before we get to that, can I just say congratulations on proving something that a lot of people don't realize you can do in America, and that is have a born and bred New Yorker work with a proud Texan. I didn't know that was possible. Congratulations, ladies. That was the biggest hurdle of them all. Exactly. <laughs> so, so talk me through this. Um, how did this even come to be? Like, like, how do you begin a journey where you say, you know what, we're gonna get together, combine our shared experiences as people and create a book that is gonna help people to deal with the traumas that they might not even know that they've had to deal with in life? 
Well, starts with vulnerability, right? <laughs> I had to, to be vulnerable enough to to reach out to Brene, um, who I called a friend, and and really during the during a tough time last summer when we were dealing with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all the uprisings, and I kept feeling away about the fact that Black people kept being called on for their expertise and teach us how to be anti-racist and teach us how to be different. But nobody was creating spaces to human to respond to what was happening, to go through the cycles of um, the kind of trauma brings to you. And and it felt like we needed a soft place to land. Like we needed a place to have to 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 talk about how this we were affected by it. You know, on on your side, um, Dr. Brown or Brene, as you'd like to be called. Um... You, you come from this, from this world where you've, you've spent so many years researching the human condition. You know, how we react to things that have happened to us our entire lives, how we respond to that, how we change, how we react to other people. On your side, as a doctor, what is trauma? I, you know, I think of trauma as a truck bumping me or going to war or something. When you say everyone has trauma or might have trauma, what, what does that actually mean? Well, yeah, I think it's a really important premise for this book because I, I really study mostly vulnerability, shame, and courage. And so one of the things that I've learned is that the greatest casualty of trauma is the willingness or ability to be vulnerable. Yeah. And so when I work with vets or I work with other folks that are hard for me to be vulnerable, of course I can't take the armor off because I've seen this and I've done this. But what people don't realize is that white supremacy is trauma. Systemic poverty is trauma. And so what we end up doing is we end up saying, look, hey, you need to be more vulnerable. You need to take the armor off. But P.S., you're not safe doing that. Right. And so that means, so when we say to people, especially people who have to deal with racism every day, be vulnerable, it's not the same ask as when someone says to me, take the armor off, you're self-protecting. Well, yeah, right, right, right. it's not on the line. Maybe my ego, maybe, you know, but my life is not on the line. So I think Tarana said, let's, let's dig in right there. Tarana, from your side, what I've always enjoyed about your work is that you've dug into the specificity of what people are going through. You know, not going broad, but actually going, okay, if it's Me Too, what are women going through during this time? What have they experienced in these spaces and how do we deal with that? It's no different in this book. You've gone into the specificity of what black people are experiencing. But what I've found in life is oftentimes when you go into the specificity, ironically, it starts to connect with more people generally. And so I'd love to know from your side, Tarana, have you found things where you go like, black people are going through this, but wait, I also find that some white people don't even realize that they've been affected by this thing. And, and then some people from other communities have been affected by this thing. Have, have you found that happening? Absolutely. I, one of the things I've said about this book is that we could do this exact book for different communities. We could have a book about shame, vulnerability, and the queer experience. And you know, this is at the end of the day about our humanity. And when you are just connecting to the part that's about our humanity, then you understand it really is a universal story. There's nuance to it, though, right? Because the way that I show up in the world is deeply affected by the, the systems that are in place to make me feel less than and not worthy, to make my life be in danger, right? So I have a different story to tell. But we're all, white supremacy affects everybody, not just Black people, right? Racism affects everybody. And so it is... It, including the per, per, the perpetuators of it. Right. <laughs> you know? um, so there's a this is this is really about the expansion and people really 
it being more invested in black humanity. We, we talked, Brene and I talked about this and I mentioned in the book that I, I think anti-racism work is important, but I think there's steps to take before we get to that. And I don't want it to be reduced to a checklist to people saying, oh, I read this book and I saw this podcast and I follow this person on social media. So I got it. I'm anti-racist. But you really haven't engaged with black humanity. One of the contributors that says that uh, anti-racist work is not transactional, it's relational. Ico. Ico. Right. And that is that's such an important thing to understand when engaging with this book. This is not just a book to read because you feel bad about, you know, Breonna Taylor. This is a book to read because of who you are as a human being and how you want to show up in the world in relation to other human beings and seeing Black people in our fullness, right? I I honestly feel like the first first reader, the first, um, this is an offering to Black people first because we also need to see our humanity um, right. You know, like engage in our own humanity and see it appreciated and find spaces to, to, to be expansive in that. So I want us to read it and, and appreciate this as an offering first. Yeah, I mean, when, when I look at the list of names who have contributed to this series of essays, it's, 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 it's a wide tapestry of people who have been connected through maybe the color of their skin, but their experiences go far and, and, and broad beyond that. Like for instance, Laverne Cox, you know, uh, Mark Lamont Hill, Austin Channing Tatum, you know, Jason Reynolds, um, and then your own child. We've got uh, Kaya Nadira who, who shares stories. And, and I think that's, that's what really touched me is in reading some of these stories is how vulnerable and how vulnerable and sharing the people are. It's terrifying. It is really scary to ses- share some of these stories because A, you go, am I sharing too much? B, you go, what is the purpose of me doing this? And, and, and then C, I often think it must be hard to realize some of these things as you're putting them into words. So, Brene, on your side, two, I guess it's a two-part question. Number one, how do we live in a world where we become more aware of this for each other as people and go like, hey, I'm gonna give you the space to try and talk about these things and, and I guess make it just a safer place to be in? And, and secondly, how can we as people try and identify those shortcomings that we have? Yeah, I just remember this crazy moment when we started getting the essays in and I called Tarana and I was like, have you read any? And she's like, yeah, I've read 10. I said, me too. And she, I said, what do you think? And she goes, I'm learning a lot about blackness that I didn't know. And I said, I'm learning a lot about my mother that I didn't really like wow. I, about my relationship with my family that I didn't know. So I, I really, here's the thing. We share stories with people who've earned the right to hear them. And we share them in space, you know, just because vulnerability feels like a privilege right now doesn't mean, I mean, there are really extreme consequences. The data are very clear that vulnerability is inextricably connected to intimacy, trust, love, belonging, um, courage. And so I think the commitment is how do we create workplaces and schools and communities where armor is neither required nor rewarded? Right. And, and that's the question. I think for white folks, the question I have all the time is when you see something that's, I think, blatant dehumanization, what story do you have to tell yourself to be okay with that? What, what, story, what story are you making up? 
whether it's, you know, we'll go back, I've done work with, you know, some of the parents from Sandy Hook, whether it's Sandy Hook or it's George Floyd or it's Micaiah Bryant. What story do you have to say to yourself to release yourself from any ownership or be okay with what's happening? Wow. Yeah, that one always takes me out too. That's, we all should ask ourselves that question. It's a narrative, you know? What is it? When people are gonna be reading these stories, some will read it as a them story, some will read it as a, oh, information story, but, but some might go, well, what, what, what do you want me to take from it? Tarana, do you have an idea of what you'd like for people to absorb once they're finished reading other people's stories? Yeah, I think it goes back to the, to the question of humanity. I think that it is a way for us to be more connected, but also I think to see black people not as a monolith, we say that all the time, black people aren't a monolith. You have lots of data here that shows you that that's, that that's true, that we are fully human and we are, to your point about like wanting people to understand the nuance and the, and the depth of the experience of these various things, I think that's what the book does and I think that's the offering. We, we can talk about white supremacy all we want and we can we hear that word and people either repel or they or they get it but when you understand that somebody is really fearful for their three-year-old child because of white supremacy or we're fearful about how we show up in the you know these the way this is going to affect us in the world because of white supremacy it's very different than just hearing it or seeing a meme on the internet. And I really want people to really connect and engage with the stories and understand and put that in the context of all the things you've been learning about anti-racist this or whatever, about white supremacy, all the stuff that's been coming up, intersectionality, I think it really is personifies those things. And I want people to, to see that. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I, I mean, if we end on that note, I think for me, sometimes the conversations we have can be very academic in how we talk about some of these things. But what I enjoyed about these stories is it's stories. Every human being understands a story. And even if you don't have some of the fancy academic terms, which I often don't have to express them, I think we all know how to be human beings. And when a human being is being a human being, it reminds us that we are too. So um, thank you both for joining me on the show. Tarana Burke, always a pleasure. Dr. Brene Brown, wonderful meeting you. Um, Good luck with the book, and hopefully I'll see you both again. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Don't forget, You Are Your Best Thing is available right now. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight, but before we go, please consider supporting an organization called One Tree Planted. They're a nonprofit charity focused on global reforestation. In fact, just last year, they planted over 10 million trees worldwide to create a healthier climate and protect biodiversity around the globe. So if you wanna help them restore forests, create jobs and build communities, then please go to the link below and help in any way that you can. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, get your vaccine, and remember, if you happen to find a congressional seat, please return it to the state of New York. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 